our scripture reading for this morning. And we are actually going to be looking at Hebrews 12, but there's Hebrews 12 quotes Isaiah 35. And so if you could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 35, and it's on page 595. If you don't have a Bible or you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 595. And if you wouldn't mind, please stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read it. You can follow along as I read. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so we are doing this series called We Are Pilgrims, and um, especially appropriate in the season of Advent. The connection is we live as Christian pilgrims between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. We live between the Advents. We, we sojourn between the Advents as Christian pilgrims. And it is a vital Christian discipline to learn how to live in the present between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. We need to get wise in this regard. We need practice. We need practice so that looking back in faith for the sake of walking forward in the present in faith, looking ahead in faith to the second coming for the sake of walking, running in faith in the present, that that just becomes like second nature, which is kind of like appropriate, right? We have a new nature um, as Christians. The old nature is past. We have a new nature. That new nature is a by grace through faith in Jesus nature. So we should look back to the cross, look ahead to the second coming, and run the race that's set before us. Okay, so just so that you know what I'm talking about, if maybe you're visiting this morning and you're, what are you guys talking about here? Because this is the fourth of six weeks in this series. Just take forgiveness as an example. Let's say someone sins against you, and they sin against you pretty seriously. 
How do you forgive and walk forward without getting bitter? Well, you look back. That's what Jesus does in Matthew 18 when he's teaching us. We're like people who have a 10,000 talent, which would be like an astronomical figure, debt. If, if the master forgave that debt, why would we go to our neighbor and choke them, pay what you owe, you know, when, when they owe us a couple months' wages? So a couple months' wages is a big deal, but compared to an astronomical debt, it's nothing. Right? So you look back on what God has done for you in Christ. If God has been so lavishly merciful to you, how can we forgive? How can we refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us? Is the cross not enough? Do you have to like have them pay a little bit more, another pound of flesh? Are you requiring that? So if God has been that long-sufferingly merciful to you, mercifully inclining toward you after so much sin, how can you close your heart to that person and become cold and hateful? Do you see how the cross impacts the present, right? Looking back in faith to what God has done for you impacts the present. How about looking forward? So when people sin against us, it causes suffering. And so... How do we deal with that? Well, Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if that person that sinned against you is not a Christian, they're going to have to pay for their sin in hell. Is that not enough for you? Like, do you need to add to that and require your own pound of flesh in addition to hell? So we literally, whatever you're struggling with, whatever the issue is, you can literally walk through anything, finding help, finding hope by orienting yourself between those two points, okay? Another way to say it would be that we live all of life by grace, the grace of the cross, the grace of the promises. We live by grace through faith, looking back, looking ahead, between the cross and the promise, or you can use the, the imagery of the Exodus. We live between redemption, rescue out of slavery to sin, Egypt, and we live en route to the promised land. We live in between. So when you lose your way, when you stumble, when you want to give up, we get our bearings by looking back to Calvary and looking ahead to the city with foundations. Okay, Looking back in faith, Looking ahead in faith, it's totally essential to navigating faithfully through the wilderness of this life. Because you know what? This life can be really hard. Wilderness, it's hard, right? In the wilderness of this world, it's easy to get faint-hearted and weary. I mean, how often do you have to deal with feeling weary? I think that's all of us, isn't it? How often do you feel faint-hearted? We'll turn to Hebrews 12, because there's a lot of encouragement for weary people or people that regularly get weary and faint-hearted. Um, so Hebrews 12, and start by looking down in verse 12. 
Hebrews 12 is found on page, well, at least 12.12 is found on page 10.09 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. So the conclusion, near the conclusion of this passage we're going to look at this morning, it says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That's the quote from Isaiah 35. So again, do you resonate with that? Drooping hands and weak knees? Emotionally, spiritually, even physically? You ever feel that way? Any of you feeling that way now? Any of you feel that way most mornings or most evenings? Do you ever feel like you get the wind just knocked out of your sails? Do you ever feel defeated? Do you ever feel like throwing in the towel? So it's easy to feel like we're never going to make it. Like we're going to just die of starvation out here in the wilderness. Like we're going to die of thirst. And so Hebrews 12 is here for us, weak and weary people. Okay, so we're not going to die of starvation out here. We're not going to die of thirst because we've got a shepherd. And with him as our shepherd, we shall not want. So our good shepherd knows that we're prone to weariness, and he's given this word for us weary pilgrims. This word is for us. So, I mean, just stop for a second. Um, Maybe you can see these words, but just listen maybe for a second. If you scan down through Hebrews 12, 1 to 14, just listen to all the words in this passage that weary pilgrims can resonate with. Weights. Entangling sins. Weariness. Faint-heartedness. Struggle against sin. Forgetting. Weary. Painful discipline. Drooping hands. Weak knees. Lame. Out of joint. These are all words that are in this passage. So, I mean, even that word for weak in verse 12, weak knees, it's kind of a weak translation. Um, It's used four other times in the New Testament, and it refers in those contexts to disability or even paralysis, not just weakness, not just like minor thing. So weariness, what is this? Why do we get weary? What causes your shoulders to kind of slump and the wind to get knocked out of your sails? I think we lose hope, don't we? That it's going to get any better. The effort for whatever that thing is, it just seems pointless. So we just kind of lose hope. We lose confidence that it matters, that our efforts matter, that it's going to make any difference, right? When there's no light at the end of the tunnel, we get discouraged and defeated. Maybe it's because of repeated failure. Sometimes we just throw up our hands. You need hope if you're going to not grow weary. You need confidence that it matters, that your efforts matter if you're going to keep on. We need to believe God's mercies and faithfulness is greater than our sin if we're going to keep going. And the book of Hebrews is aiming to give us just those things, hope, confidence, and faith. And it is doing it left, right, and center in this book. And we've seen it already in the last few weeks. And you know how it does it over and over and over again is by pointing us to Jesus. He's the good word for weary pilgrims. So we're going to look at Jesus this morning. And so if you're weary, you came to the right place And you're going to be looking at the right person um, this morning. So point number two, looking to Jesus. 
The text here says, let us run the race that's set before us. You see it there. And then in verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right here, this is the key for us pilgrims running the race of faith. We have got to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's the most important thing here. We've got to look to Jesus. There is no Christianity without Jesus. There's no hope without Jesus. There's no forgiveness without Jesus. There's no atonement and peace with God without Jesus. There's no future for us without Jesus. There's no happy ending without Jesus. There's no way to heaven. It would remain closed to us. We would still be in our sins. We would be helpless and hopeless without Jesus. But Jesus did come, first advent, right? We live between the advents. He came willingly. He became incarnate. He took on flesh and blood. This is crazy. We could never get to the bottom of this mystery. Eternal God took on flesh and blood and became a helpless little baby. The author of life became killable. He was tempted for real. Have you ever thought about this? He was born willingly, this was God's plan, under a cloud of illegitimacy. In fact, later on in his life, the Pharisees finally played that card. We weren't born in sin. That's some shame, isn't it? He took that on willingly. The owner of all things, the maker of all things, became poor and homeless. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. He had no honor in his hometown. They wanted to throw him off of a cliff. He was tempted by Satan. He was misunderstood by most. He was abandoned by his friends. He was betrayed. He was unjustly handled. He was unjustly tried. He was shamefully treated by men that he created and whose lives he sustained by his powerful word. And then he's tacked naked and on a cruel, humiliating cross, instrument of torture. He dies on a public thoroughfare like a common criminal. The judge of all the earth hung on a tree like a common criminal. So while he was being shunned and scorned and derided, you know what he was doing? He was shunning, scorning, and deriding the shame of it all. He didn't despise those who despised him. He despised the shame of it all out of love. And he did it all for the joy set before him, like it says in 12.2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The shame didn't get in the way. I'll take on the shame for the sake of the joy. And what was that joy? The joy of saving a people for himself, a pure and holy bride that he would make pure and holy by his shameful sacrifice, at least shameful in the eyes of those who saw it. It was glorious in truth. So he followed that all the way through. He cried, it is finished on the cross. He made a full, once-for-all atonement, totally dealing with sins, all of our sins, past, present, future, of everyone who would ever trust in him as their Savior and their Lord. Like, 
cleansing of conscience, peace with God, eternal salvation, all of it, it is finished on the cross. And when he had quite literally gone through hell for us, and what I mean by that is absorbing the full wrath of God for everyone who would ever believe in that space of three hours. Again, mystery, how did it just blow your mind? Why did it go black? Because it's a sign of judgment, just like the plague right before the Passover lamb. Everything went black. So at high noon, it goes black from 12 to 3 because the father is spending his just punishment on his son in our place for our sins. So he's literally taking hell. If you're a Christian, he took hell. This is this infinite punishment for you in that three-hour space, and not just you, but anyone who ever believed. How is that even possible? And then it's finished. It's done. Paid the debt in full. Done. And then when he rose three days later, victorious, vindicating all of his claims, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because his, his work, the work of salvation, was done. Hebrews echoes this multiple times. In Hebrews 1.3, it says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then Hebrews 10.12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So back to chapter 12. Looking to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see how he's the founder and the perfecter? Let us run the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the author of it. He's the pioneer, right? He's the trailblazer. He opened the way for us. There's no way for us to dwell with God who is white-hot holy and not be consumed. We are unholy and guilty. You remember Isaiah in chapter 6 when he sees the Lord, he's like, I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm unclean. And he was probably the holiest man in his generation. He's the prophet of the Lord. But he gets in God's presence and he's in trouble and he needs atonement. So we deserve that holy wrath, because we're unholy. How in the world can we approach him and not find ourselves guilty before the judge of all the earth? At his first advent, again, this pioneer, he goes into the holy of holies on our behalf, makes full atonement. So all of the sacrificials in the Old Testament is just, it's just a pointer. It's just like a little scale model. It's all pointing to the final fulfillment in Jesus. Remember when he died, the, the veil that kind of sectioned off the Holy of Holies, the presence, the special presence of God, it's torn from top to bottom. Access to the presence of God was opened up. And he, raised, he ran that race all the way to the end. He's the perfecter of faith because he saw that work of salvation through to completion. Amen. And he's going to see us through to the end. So until his second advent, to go back to Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will pursue us all the days of our life. Okay, Goodness and mercy, you could think of them like God's sheepdogs. So we're the sheep, he's the shepherd. 
goodness and mercy, you know, barking, keep us like on the path all the way home. They'll pursue us all the days of our life and we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Second advent. So we run our race looking to Jesus who opened the way home and he did everything necessary to get us all the way there. So this language of completion and perfection, it's really important in the book of Hebrews. We see that this perfect salvation has been perfectly provided by a perfect Savior. Just listen to a few verses strung together from Hebrews that explain how he's the perfecter of faith. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. According to the law, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Consequently, he is able to save to the end, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then finally, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So all of that to say, when you stumble and fall on this race that's set before you, look to Jesus. So he died for that sin. We oftentimes get discouraged and, and this wind goes out of our sails because of our own failures, don't we? I'll never change. Like we're beating ourselves up. Look to Jesus. He died for that sin. Past, present, future. You're not relegated to the outer courts. You're not barely tolerated stepchild of God. The gospel means you're not a barely tolerated stepchild. You are a beloved son or daughter, and nothing against stepchildren. You know what I'm saying here. I'm not joking about this. But we oftentimes relate to God that way. No, we're a beloved son or daughter. You are no more loved on your best days than you are on your worst. You're no less loved on your worst. So when things are going badly, look to Jesus. When things are going well, look to Jesus. Don't get puffed up. Look to Jesus. You're in this race by grace. What are you doing in this race? He redeemed you, and he put you on the path. Every mile that's behind us was enabled by him, powered by his grace. And if you're doing well, don't get complacent. That's when we start to veer off the path, right? Look to Jesus. Stay on track. And you know what? If you're strong right now and running, there are others who are going to need your stability and strength. They're limping, and they need your shoulder to throw their arm around. And if you're suffering, and it's hard, and you want to give up, look to Jesus. Look how he suffered. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured such 
hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How about that for an encouraging word? You know how sometimes we can maybe tend to, to pamper or coddle a child, and, and sometimes the most loving thing is to, you know, breed some toughness as far as expectations in that child? Well, that's kind of what our father is doing right here. <laughs> you haven't even shed any blood yet in your struggle against sin. That's a pretty important, like, expectation calibration, you know, that God's giving us here. When we suffer, what do we often do? We love to look around and pine for someone else's race that's set before them, that looks like an easier run than ours. Why do we do that? I mean, we look around and kind of get jealous and, oh, it must be nice, I wish. Why is it that we don't look often to those whose run was and is much harder? That would be helpful. The pining and jealousy is never helpful. But looking to Jesus, consider how much hostility he experienced from sinners so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And in other words, you're not alone in this. I mean, he was falsely accused, unjustly abused. He was abandoned and betrayed and beaten and flogged and mocked and derided and on and on. Consider him, not the person over here that's got, at least it looks like it, a cushier race and you wish you had that race. Remember, through the suffering of your race, the one to whom you look is the one who is not unable to sympathize with your weaknesses because he's been there. He's gone through it. And actually, he's gone through much more than you will ever go through. So he was in every respect tempted, as you are, by trial, by suffering. So you can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, expecting to find well-suited grace for sufferers for what you need to endure your suffering. So Bethel, let's run. We need to run, not meander spiritually, not drift, not slide back, not give up, not quit, not throw up our hands, not throw in the towel. Let us run. So let's look here for a few more minutes at how we are to the run. There's so much help on the how in these verses 1 to 14. So look again at verse 1. Let us run. Point number three. If you're following along, there's an outline in the bulletin, or you'll see the points on the screen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, like they did, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. So this section is all about how we run, how we run. Really, this... These two verses, there's one main command. It's let us run. And everything else is how you run. You run with the witnesses, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We need to run without the weights and sins, laying those aside. We need to run with endurance, and we need to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Okay, So this is all about how we run. I have a few things to note here quickly first before we hit some of these. I've already alluded to the fact that 
Um, it's the race set before us. Like, you have a race that's set before you. It's not the same kind of path as your neighbor. We all have to accept our divinely chosen race path. It does no good to wish we had someone else's. The sooner we accept ours, the sooner we can get on and make some progress. In fact, if you look up at the end of chapter 11, some people by faith conquered kingdoms, escaped the edge of the sword. Man, everything seemed to be victory in Jesus. And then, without even skipping a beat, some people were tortured, even sawn in two. Isaiah, traditionally, says that he was sawn in two. Some people were killed by the sword. Um, I would prefer the former category as far as my race. Thank you very much. Well, who sets the race before you? You can't. God does that. So we need to accept that by faith again. Note also that this is a race, okay? So the Greek word for race here, it's agona. Does that sound like an English word you know? Agony. That's where we get the word for agony. This race is no cakewalk. In fact, Paul refers to the Christian life in other places as the fight of faith. You know, fight the good fight of the faith in 1 Timothy 6 when he says that to Timothy. Literally, it's agonize the good agony. It's the same word in verb and noun forms. And then when Paul came to the end of his life, what did he say? I have fought the good fight. I've agonized the good agony. I've finished the race. Here's the race. I've kept the faith. So that's normal Christianity, brothers and sisters. That's what we signed up for. If we keep our eyes fixed on the agony, we'll collapse. We'll faint. We'll get weary. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men fall exhausted. But those who look to Jesus shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Okay, so how, how else do we run? How do we do this? There is so much grace in here to help us run. So first, with the witnesses. So it says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, doesn't mean that they're just watching us, okay? In fact, look back, verses 39 and 40 of chapter 11. All these, all these people that are listed in chapter 11, we considered some of them last week, though commended through their faith, did not receive the fullness of what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So this is like, it's like a wrestling meet, you know? There are individual matches, but the, the meet is not over, and you don't win until everybody finishes their match, right? So the Old Testament saints that are in the list are waiting for us to cross the finish line, all of us to cross the finish line, and then we all receive the fullness of what's promised together. So what are they doing in the meantime? They're lining the way, not just to watch, but to cheer us on. They're witnesses in that sense. They speak to us. They're waiting for us. They can't wait for us all to cross the finish line. And their cheering is of a particular kind. They're saying with their lives, don't stop. You can make it. It is all worth it. 
I mean, just think of what Abraham has to say. He was an idiot. He was a skunk sometimes. And you know what? God rescued him. So some of us do some really stupid things, and then we feel like we can't even come to God anymore. And Abraham would say, listen, let me tell you, I was an idiot. I did the same thing again. I pawned my wife off twice. And you know what? God was faithful, and he rescued me twice. Trust him. Or David, total you know, collapse of colossal proportions. That doesn't mean he was done. He finished the race, even though the scars were there, the consequences were there, right? Sarah, she's got something to say. She waited quite a long time for something she desired, even for what God promised. So we run with the witnesses. They have so much to say to us. Are we listening? That's how we run. But also we run without the weights and sins. Okay, so this is just simple, really practical. I don't know what it is for you, but what is slowing you down? It's not, you realize these are two different categories. A weight could be something that's good, but it's not helping you run. Sins that are entangling you. So what is that for you? What, what do you need to lay aside? What's tripping you up? What's entangling you? What's slowing you down? I mean, this is serious. This is real faith fights. Real faith pursues holiness. Look down at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Is that how you think? Do you want to run? Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to get home? Do you want to get to your destination? Or do you want to hang out as long as possible in the rest stop arcade of this world in the gift shop? And the question is, if, if we don't want to run, if we don't want to throw off the stuff that's slowing us down and you know, get free of the sin that's entangling us, do we really believe that he's the rewarder of those who seek him? Just like it says in 11.6, we looked at that last week. So let's throw off anything that's keeping us from getting to our truest gain and run. So with the witnesses, without the weights and sins, with endurance, I'll just hit this quickly because we've already kind of hit it. Obviously, we have need of endurance. This is a marathon, not a sprint. I mean, it's important to get that in your mind. I don't know how many of you run, you know, kind of, seriously or just kind of jog or whatever, but maybe you, even if you don't do that very often, maybe there was a time in the past and you understand that the goals you set when you start, like what your expectations are, that really affects you. So if I go out and I say, I think I'll run a few miles, I might quit after two because I'm just not feeling great. I'm just like, ah, forget it. I just want to go home. But if I sign up for a 10K... Or if I say, like I literally have to do this, I'm going this many miles today, I'm going to push through when I don't feel good because there's a goal in mind. So you have need of endurance. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So let us run with the witnesses, without the weights and sins, with endurance, and then finally with faith in the love of the Father. There's a lot of verses left, but they all kind of say one thing. 
So this is huge. Verses 5 to 11. And just like that endurance thing, just like the, hey, in your struggle against sin, you haven't even resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Just as that calibrates our expectations, these verses are intended to calibrate our expectations as Christian pilgrims. So look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. First off, you've got to know, you've got to know, you've got to know that this word for discipline here, when he talks about discipline in this passage, it is including both punitive like corrective, punishment sort of discipline, but also the discipline that's training. Like if you're going to do a marathon, if you're going to run a race, you need to discipline yourself, right? You need to train yourself. You're not punishing. I mean, you are kind of punishing yourself, but you know what I'm saying. It's not like getting a paddle. So this discipline is both, and all of it is love. So when you and I, when we are experiencing the discipline of the Lord, when we are being reproved, when we are being chastised, we cannot think it's because God is sick of us or fed up with us. Like, what did I do? He's expressing his love. Do you believe that? Do you you know how big of a deal that is as far as a paradigm shift? So remember back to Jesus being the finisher of our faith. He sat down. The debt's been paid in full. Atonement's been made. So guess what? There is nothing left but love. There is no wrath left. Do you believe that? So any suffering you experience in this life, any hardship, any trial, it is for our good. Do you see how important that is to actually embrace? It's huge. Any punishment the Lord meets out, any discipline he gives us is love. It's because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us, because he's a good father. So important to believe that when we're being chastised or when we're being stretched and pushed beyond what we thought we could handle. Verse 7, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Certainly there are people that have painful... The text is not denying that. But generally speaking, good fathers discipline their children. So... We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline. For the moment, in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, that's the moment. It's when those moments take place. 
And that discipline can seem painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives and then ultimately in eternity to those who've been trained by it. So it is so easy to get weary and faint-hearted and want to throw up your hands. You can feel like everyone and everything is against you. And yet, verses 12, 4 to 12 are evidence that God is leading you into these things lovingly. The race, the agony that's set before you, set before you, he's using it all so that you will share in his holiness. He's using it for our good. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He said, if you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. Imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it is a hotel. The other half think it is a prison. Those who think it is a hotel might regard it as quite intolerable, and those who thought it was a prison might decide that it was really surprisingly comfortable. The people who try to hold an optimistic view of this world would become pessimists. The people who hold a pretty stern view become optimistic. He's echoing what God says in the Psalms. Listen to these words. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear with me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your, your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word through affliction. I've hoped in your word. And then he says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those he loves. So Martin Luther one time was meditating on Psalm 119, these verses, and he said there are three keys to understanding and embracing living God's truth. Prayer, meditation on Scripture, and suffering. Trial. He said, these three rules teach you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. It is wisdom supreme. And then he went on to say, as soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you. He will make a real doctor of you and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. For I myself owe my enemies many thanks for being so for so beating, pressing, and frightening me through the devil's raging that they have turned me into a fairly good theologian. We can say into a fairly good Christian pilgrim. We've got need of endurance, Bethel, but we have a pioneer and a perfecter of faith who has done and will do everything necessary to empower and keep us all the way to the finish line. 
So we need to look to, to Jesus, Bethel. Look to Jesus. And then lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed and strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we're going to close by reminding each other of how we need to run to Jesus. Come, ye sinners, is the song. And how we most certainly can with confidence come to this Jesus because of the gospel. So we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We should hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our need as we run the race that's set before us. So let's pray and then we'll sing this song together. Again, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Please help us believe that you are the rewarder of those who seek you. That you love us and you discipline us because you love us. And that you have done everything to get us safely home. Lord, we need your help. Would you turn weariness and faint-heartedness into encouragement and strength this morning? For the sake of your great name, amen.